Join me just in thanking our team this morning for leading us in worship. I'm grateful for you guys. Thank you. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. It's almost springtime. It's almost springtime. It's coming. It is coming. Hey, LifePoint family, welcome back. Uh, it's good to be with you. Guests, my name is Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus. We're grateful to have you uh, with us, guests. There's a QR code on the chairs in front of you. If you are new here, take a moment. You can point your camera out there or just type in lpguest.com. That'll take you to a resource we've developed for you just to help you through the morning. Uh, there's a guest information card there at lpguest.com. Please take the 90 seconds or so it takes to fill that out. You'll also see there's just a bunch of helpful info there. The notes for this morning uh, will be up on the, it'll be up on the screens, the passages of scripture, all that's there at lpguest.com. And if you've been here a while, you can find all of that at the Life One Ohio app uh, as well. We are uh, kicking off a brand new series today that we're calling The Ascent. We're going to be looking at five mountaintop experiences across the pages of Scripture. So we're going to kind of fly over, in some ways, the whole narrative of Scripture leading up to the cross and resurrection. We'll end this series out uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, looking at Mount Calvary. But along the way, we're going to go Mount Moriah this morning in Genesis, Genesis 22. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and uh, turn there. Next week, we're going to be at Mount Sinai in Exodus, then at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings, then at the Mount of Temptation in Matthew 4, and then we'll land the series at Mount Calvary in Luke 23. And I'm excited to go through this together. Uh, a lot, as we go, hopefully we'll see this big idea, big idea sort of materialize. The big idea of the series, something we'll say every single week, is this, that God's purpose for us is established in His provision for us, that his purpose for us is established in his provision for us. We see throughout the scripture God consistently providing for his people in miraculous ways. We're going to see it in these mountaintop experiences that he provides a lamb, that he provides the law, that he provides an opportunity to see the nature of Christ, that he provides his own son. And we see, and sometimes we say it this way, that we're saved to then be sent. God cares about us, loves us, draws us into his family, but he's got a purpose for us, not just to sit, to then send us back out to make disciples of all nations. And so throughout the course of this series, we're going to see God's purpose for us as a people, as his people, is established, is shown, is evidenced in his loving care and provision for us. Now, we've got a fair bit to cover this morning, so we're going to dig in. Genesis chapter 22, before I read the passage I want to give us two, uh, two statements to sort of guide our time together, two really lenses through which to view this chapter. Because this chapter, I mean, Frank, right, the story they hear can be a little jarring at first. When you read it, you're like, what in the world is going on? And so it's important to understand the context, as always. But I think these two statements might give us two lenses through which to look at Genesis 22 and really understand what's going on here. So here's the first one. Genesis 22 is a test. Okay? It's a test of Abraham's faith. Genesis 22 represents really the final test in Abraham's life. We're going to see it just here in a moment. I'm going to tell you now. God tells Abraham at the beginning of this chapter to go sacrifice his son, his only son. It's not technically his only son. He has another son, Ishmael, but he has sent Ishmael away. His covenant is established through his son, Isaac. It's the son that scripture says the son he loves, and God tells him to sacrifice him on top of a mountain, which raises the obvious question, why would God do that? That sounds barbaric and terrible, and does he really want Abraham to do that? 
And the answer to that question, ultimately speaking, is no. And we see that in what God does here in the chapter, but also what God says to the Israelites later on. Okay, so this is an important point. The Israelites lived, as, as Abraham has children, they have children, they become the nation of Israel. They live in the midst of a people, of people groups who sacrifice their children to the gods, to appease the gods. It's awful. And God acknowledges it as awful. Tells the Israelite nation, never do that, right? That I am not for that. So we know that's not God's character. He tells them not to do it. So why does he seemingly do it here? What's happening here? is that there is a larger purpose for what God is doing. And it's twofold. One, it's a test of Abraham's faith. Will he trust God, even with his son, the person he probably cherishes most on earth, the son that he's waited for, the son of the promise? Will he hold him back from the Lord, or will he trust the Lord with him? And really more than that, it's a test of Abraham's trust in the promises and the power of God. Because as I will explain this morning, Abraham has had multiple promises directly from God concerning this boy. He has had multiple promises from God about the fact that God told him, Genesis 12, right? It goes on 15, 17, 18, 19, 21. There are multiple times where God comes in and promises Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole na- all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth. And specifically, he tells him it's going to be through Isaac. So this moment is a test for Abraham, where Abraham's going, God, I don't know what you're doing, but as we've sung, I know, I know what you've done, and God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've said, and I know what you've promised me concerning this boy, and it's a test. Abraham, do you trust me even when things don't make sense? And the second statement is this. Number one, Genesis 22 is a test of Abraham's faith. Number two, Genesis 22 is a prophetic picture of the gospel. It is a stunning foreshadowing of the cross and the resurrection. The story of Abraham is the story of a father giving up his son and Isaac, the son, willingly going along with it. It powerfully portrays the day where centuries later, God would give up his own son and Jesus would willingly give up his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. So this entire episode, and Lord willing, I'll do a good job of pointing us there along the way. You're going to see it is a stunning foreshadowing. That's why I say prophetic picture. It happens depending on when you date it, 1,500 to 2,000 years before Jesus ever arrives on the scene. And yet there's this incredible story with all these parallels between Isaac and Christ and Abraham and the Father. The parallels are all over the place. And it's pointing us forward to the cross and the resurrection. My hope is that for those of us who are believers, it'll give us just more confidence in the truth of what the scriptures teach. It'll put us in awe of the greatness of God. And then for those of us who don't know Jesus, I hope today as, you, as we read this story, even though it's hard at first and you're like, that doesn't make sense, my hope is that ultimately it shows you the heart of the Father and you'll see and appreciate in new ways the lengths, the depths to which God the Father and Christ the Son went to save you. Put his Son in your place. So let's dig into it together. Genesis 22 verse 1. Sometime later, I'm reading from the NIV this morning. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. The ESV, the English Standard Translation says, uh, after these things. After these things, God tested Abraham. These things being, 
that God has partially fulfilled his promise. Isaac has been born. Isaac, at this point in time, some commentators, most commentators seem to think he has grown a bit, might even be a teenager. God repeatedly, once again, promised Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. Not only promised him, but then reiterates that promise after Genesis 12 and 15, 17, 18, and 21, tells him, I'm going to establish my covenant through this boy. And it says, after all that's happened, after he's been born and he's grown, God tests Abraham. And I want to take a moment here and just note something about the testing of God. One commentator said it so well, and I wanted to mention this. So the testing of Abraham's faith is not to tear him down. And the testing of your faith is not to tear you down. It's ultimately to build Abraham up. This commentator noted, Satan is the one who tempts us. God doesn't tempt, he tests. There's a difference. Satan is the one who tempts us, and he tempts us in order to cause us to fall and cause us to fail. God does not tempt. He tests our faith. He puts us through difficult trials. He puts us in the midst of difficult circumstances in order to test and show the genuineness of our faith. And that testing of our faith is ultimately for our good. James tells us it produces endurance. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5 that suffering, testing produces endurance, which produces character, which results in hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. And so while what Abraham goes through here is a bit mind-boggling, I can't imagine what it felt like. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's extremely difficult. But make no mistake, God has ultimately a good purpose for what he's doing here in Abraham's life. He's a good father with a good purpose for the testing he's putting him through. And I just want to say that and remind us the same is true in your life and in mine. I know some of us right now are going through a season of testing. I've talked with you. It's a difficult trial. Some of us don't understand. I don't understand. As I look in some of your lives, I'm like, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> but when those moments come and when those valleys come, we go back to the promises of God and to his character. That, Lord, you're good. And I trust you that even in the midst of this testing, this is not for my harm but for my ultimate good, because he's a good father with a good purpose, even in the testing. Sometime later, it says he tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, and I'm going to just note some phrases throughout here, just to highlight or underline as you read the text. This was one of them. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. You ought to be hearing some echoes of John 3.16 in there, right? That the father gave his only begotten son. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. That's important as well, Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. And verse 3 says, right, in light of that stunning statement, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. Point, point this out. When you have clarity from the Lord, when you have clarity on direction from the Lord, the next step is prompt obedience. Prompt obedience is the next step. Do you notice Abraham doesn't argue with God? He doesn't employ delaying tactics and try to stall. It says early the next morning, he gets up and he gets things ready to go. Even though what was just said really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to him. I was reading, a, uh, there's a book called If the Tomb is Empty by Joby Martin, and it's about these mountaintop experiences. And he notes in there, and I thought it was really good, he said, man, I am all for prayer and for counsel and for waiting on the Lord. 
unless you're using prayer as a stalling tactic not to do the thing that God told you to do. And I'm going to be honest, that hit me. Because I know I've done that. There are moments, we had this discussion in life group this week actually. We had a couple in our life group who's got a big decision in front of them. Family altering kind of decision. Life kind of course altering decision. And, and they're like, we don't have clarity on it yet. And so we just gathered with them as a life group, prayed for them. Lord, give clarity here. There is a time for waiting on the Lord, not rushing out ahead of him, sitting and waiting and say, God, until we have clarity on this, we don't want to move forward. We want to wait on you. Praise God. But when God has spoken and you have clarity from him and you've got good counsel and you have from the word and through time in prayer, you're like, I know God is calling me to do this. The next step is prompt obedience. To say, okay, God, as scary as it might be, and as much as I don't understand yet, and I still have questions, but I'm going to obey and trust that you're going to show up. That's what Abraham does. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And then note this statement, we will worship and then what? We will come back to you. I told you this is a test of Abraham's faith. That is a statement of Abraham's faith. That's a faith statement. We will go up the mountain, Isaac and I, and we will come back down. We're coming back down. That's a rock solid statement of confidence in God. It's Abraham saying, God, you promised me this boy. You promised me descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. So I know, right? I know what God told me a couple of days ago, but I also know what God told me throughout the course of my life over and over and over. So God, I don't know how you're going to do it. I just know that you will. I know that you will rescue and I know that the end of the story is not with Isaac's death. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Note that phrase, that Isaac carries the wood on his own back. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. The father carries the instruments of execution. The son carries the wood on his own back. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, or said to his father Abraham, Father, it's the first time Isaac speaks, by the way. It seems like at this point in time, he's beginning to put two and two together. He says, yes, my son, Abraham replied. And fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I can't imagine that moment for Abraham as his son looks up at him and says, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And this is Abraham's response. You talk about once again, faith. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Again, I don't know how you're going to do it, God, but I know what you've promised. And the two of them went on together. If your gospel alarms aren't going off at this point in time, they should, Right? He's saying God himself will provide the lamb. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus walks into the scene. And what's the first thing John the Baptist says about Jesus? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Provided for us by God so that we might be saved. We sinned. Christ died. The lamb in our place. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Just note again the son, right? He got a father, right? Giving up his son, a son's willing obedience 
to the father. Isaac, if he is a teenager, like Abraham's like 115, right? It would not be difficult to outrun him at this point in time. And yet Isaac, in obedience to the father, trusting him, allows this to happen. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. This was a test, in other words, this was a test of your faith, Abraham, and I see through your actions the belief and the trust that you have in me. Now, I'm not going to park here for long, but it does raise the question, did God really not know this already? It says, now I know that you fear God. It's a bit of a puzzling statement, I admit. And you could, I mean, you could interpret it that way. I'm of the opinion, based on the hundred other passages about God's foreknowledge of the beginning from the end, right? The end from the beginning. Psalm 139 tells us that he knows the very words on our mouths before we even speak them. That he knows us completely. I don't think this is like brand new information to God where he's stunned like, wow, I didn't know that, Abraham. I think it is an acknowledgement of the fact that our actions matter. And that you can say on the one hand, yes, I trust you. But that trust and that faith has to be worked out in obedience, that's why James says faith without works is dead. It's one thing for Abraham to say, I totally trust you, God. It's another thing for him to place his life and even the life of his son in the Lord's hands. It's one thing for you and I to say, totally trust God. It's another thing when God says, hey, I want you to trust me in ways it's going to hurt. In ways where you're putting yourself out there and going, Lord, if you don't catch me, I'm going to fall. That's faith. It's not illogical. It's logical to trust in the promises of God. It's just sometimes scary and hard. But it's us saying, Lord, I trust you. If you don't catch me, I'm going to fall, but I know you're going to catch me because you're a good God. Verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. I'm not an avid hunter. Uh, I'm, I like the outdoors, I love to hike, but I don't know enough about rams and their behavior, right? Uh, but I do know this, right? I may not be an avid hunter, I may not be a lamb and ram expert. I'm very sure mountain goats don't regularly just run into thickets and get caught by their horns. In fact, the, the way the text is written, it's very clear. Like they're there and all of a sudden they look up and there just happens to be a ram caught in the thicket. The point is extremely clear that God has fulfilled the promise here. That he's going to provide for us the burnt offering. This is a miraculous provision of a ram in place to be slain in the place of Isaac. A substitute, a sacrifice in his place. And so he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. In the old King James, it's translated Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. One of the names for God in the Old Testament. God sees. He sees to it. He sees the need and he provides. And then Abraham says this, and to this day it is said, or the author tells us this, to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Note that, underline it, circle it. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. In the next couple of verses, God goes on to reiterate his promise to Abraham. Abraham, he says, I see your faith, and because of your faith and your obedience to me, I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring. Uh, you become a father of many nations, and he reiterates the promise he's given to him over and over and over. All right, I told you at the beginning two things, right? One, 
This is a test of Abraham's faith. And two, it's this stunning picture of the gospel, this foreshadowing of the cross and of the resurrection. Let me see if with the time we have left, if I can't just drive those two things home. Let's just dig a little bit deeper into the testing of Abraham's faith. The reality is Abraham got a lot of things wrong in his life. <laughs> if uh, We've said this before. If you read the Bible and you think about the Old Testament and you, you look through the stories and you're like, man, it's just stories of a bunch of really moral, great people. That is not correct. It's the story of a bunch of people who are flawed and sinful like you and I are. Abraham gets some things really wrong in his life. Twice, he gives up his wife to a foreign king. He allows her basically to be trafficked in order to save his own skin. He says, just save her, tell everyone you're my sister. I know you're beautiful. They might kill me because of you. Twice he does that. Once he listens to his wife's very bad advice as they sort of scheme about, hey, it seems like God's taking a long time to fulfill his promise. So maybe we can force that another way. And it creates serious chaos in his family because of it. He makes some serious mistakes in the course of his life, but something that Abraham got right. Maybe the one thing he got right is when God promised him something, he believed him. When God made a promise to Abraham, God believe, or Abraham believed God. And that belief was so rock solid, it was evidenced in his actions. Genesis 12, God told Abraham, if you remember back in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, pack up all your stuff, your family, and leave everything that you know, everything that's familiar. And when you read the account, he doesn't even tell him where he's going. He says, just to a place that I'm going to show you. I'll let you know when you get there. Go ahead and move. And we know, I think sometimes we forget this. When we read Abraham's story, we know the rest of the story. We're sitting there thinking Father Abraham in our head, right? The song we sing, we're like, man, this is going to turn out really great for Abraham. Abraham doesn't know any of that at this point in time. All he has is a promise. That's it. Move your life. Move your family. Go somewhere that I'll show you, and I will bless you and make you into a great nation. That's all Abraham has to operate on. And the scriptures tell us he believed God, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. He was willing to go out and step out in faith and a faith that was not only saying it, but living it. Walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Hebrews 11 tells us a little bit more about this particular episode here and the faith of Abraham and God. It says that Abraham was so convinced in the promises of God and the power of God. It says he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he had to. As he's going up that mountain, walking up that mountain going, this is what God told me to do. I have no idea how this is going to work out. He is believing, man, God, if you have to raise my son from the dead to fulfill the promises you've given me, then that's what you'll do. Put it another way, God believed in the God of resurrection before God ever performed the resurrection. He's looking forward and he believes in God's power to raise even the dead. He believed God, he stood on his promises and as he walked up that hill, you think about this as a father. The evidence is terrible. What he's looking at is discouraging, but he is convinced, God, you're good, you're able, and you will fulfill the promises you've made to me. That's why he's applauded in the Bible. He's not applauded because of his perfect performance. He's not applauded because he was a sinless man. He was not, and neither are you or me. He's applauded because of his faith in God, and once again, the same is true for you and me. Have you sinned? Yes. <laughs> Are you here today? Many of us, right? 
you don't need me to tell you this, that you're not perfect. You're like, Hale, I know that very well. <laughs> I feel it. I see it on a daily basis. The scriptures don't look at us and say, hey, what you need to do is just perform better. The scriptures look at us and say, you trust the Lord Jesus with your life. You turn from your sin and you trust him and you walk by faith and not by sight. Cale, what I see around me, the evidence of my life, it's discouraging. I don't see how this is going to work out. I get it. But we don't walk by faith, we walk by sight. We stand on the promises and the goodness of God. And once again, that's not illogical. You're saying, well, you just be positive for the sake of being positive? No. It is logical to stand on the promises of God and say, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know what God has said, and I know that he's going to move. There's a family in our church, married couple, and they, uh, their oldest son is the proverbial prodigal. For years, has walked away from the Lord. And for years, the parents have prayed over their son, wept over their son. And as the years have gone by, God, in their time of prayer, sometimes together and sometimes independently, has given them passages of Scripture specific to their son and about his eventual return. Mom was telling me as I asked him about this, she said, we didn't go looking for passages of Scripture to fit what we wanted to hear. That's important. Said, we didn't go looking for passages of scripture just to fit what we wanted to hear, what we wanted to be true. We were just praying and seeking God, and God led us specifically to these passages. Sometimes on the surface, we didn't even understand why. You know, hey, go read this passage. And be like, what does that have to do with anything? And they would go read it and then see how this was a promise from the Lord to them. And so now for years, they've held on to these promises from the Lord through his word through prayer, led by the Spirit, about their son's eventual return. And to this day, they stand on those promises despite the evidence that they see or despite the evidence that they don't see. And they wrote to me one other thing. I'm going to paraphrase here, but the dad was right. And he said, we hope to get to experience, we hope to get to experience in this life the day that he returns and to enjoy in this life deeper relationship with him. But we understand we may not. We may die before that day comes. But listen to this. We'll die in hope. We'll die in faith, standing on those promises and knowing that one day we will see our son again. If not in this life, then in the next. Church, that's, that's what we're talking about here. That's faith. That's the life of faith. When you say, man, despite the evidence that I see, things don't look good. <laughs> but we have these promises from the Lord. That's why it's so important that you're in the word, that you, you get to know the promises. You get to know the God of the promises. And as the Holy Spirit leads you and helps you apply those promises rightly to your life, you stand on those promises, not on the evidence that you see. We walk by faith and not by sight. And I get it. You say, Cale, I've got questions. So do I. <laughs> Kale, I don't always understand everything. Neither do I. But I know that God is good. I know that his promises are true. And I know that he's faithful and he's able. And I plead with you, wherever you are today, to trust him. And as he puts you through seasons of testing, I promise you, it is for your good, not for your harm. Secondly, and I'll close with this. I've hinted at it all along. I said the whole thing is a stunning prophetic picture of the gospel. I want you to just take a moment and think about this with me. 
this story. The story is one of a father who gives up, who offers up his own son, the son that he loves as a sacrifice for sin. And Isaac, the son, willingly goes along with this, trusting the father's plan. And the Genesis 22 tells us he carries the wood of his own execution up a hill, puts the wood on his back and walks up this mountain. Which, by the way, I ask you to circle Moriah. Do you know where that mountain is, Moriah? We think, right, traditionally speaking, this has always been identified. It's Jerusalem. It's where eventually the traditional site of where Isaac is sacrificed eventually becomes the temple, Solomon's temple, later on where countless animals would be sacrificed for the sake of sin, all leading the people to understand the one day when God would put an end to all of that, when the final sacrifice would be made for all sin. In fact, Mount Calvary, it's on the same mountain, Right? From what we know, right? we think Mount Moriah here, the exact spot, it's just a couple hundred meters, a few hundred meters away from the hill of Calvary. You can see it from this exact spot. So Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary, same spot. So think about that for a moment. In this moment, you've got a father giving up his son and the son willingly in obedience to the father walking up this hill, carrying the wood on his own back of his own execution. Centuries later, the father would give up his son. And Jesus, the son, in obedience to the father, would walk up pretty much this same hill, carrying the wood on his back, the cross on his back, the instrument for his own execution, trusting the father's plan. And he would go up just as Isaac did up this mountain. And on that mountain, like Abraham said, the Lord would provide. Jehovah Jireh would provide on this mountain a way for you and I to be saved. He would provide his son. Once again, God would provide a lamb, a substitute, a sacrifice for your sin and mine. But there comes that crucial twist. Because at Calvary, right, the son and the substitute are one and the same. At Moriah, the son is spared. At Calvary, the son is slain. At Moriah, the son is spared. But at Calvary, the son is slain. There would be no substitute, no ram caught in the thicket this time. It's just Jesus with the crown of thorns on his head. And the Father's knife, the knife of God's justice against all sin, is not stayed that time. It's not held. It falls squarely on Jesus. Why? Because he is taking there at Calvary God's anger against sin, God's justice against all unrighteousness, he's taking it on himself. He is the ram. He is the lamb provided by God for you and for me. And Jesus willingly does that. And the knife falls squarely on Jesus. And as Jesus is there hanging on the cross, do you remember what he says? It is finished. All these moments in the Old Testament, all the foreshadowing, all the sacrificial system, all this helping us understand the seriousness of sin and the need for someone in our place, something in our place leading to Christ at the cross. And it gets even better, the parallels, because just as Isaac in the story figuratively comes back from the dead, he's as good as dead, and then the father receives him back. Jesus actually, on the third day, God raises Jesus from the grave. He defeats hell and sin and death forever. And he promises to anyone and everyone who would trust him, turn from your sin, trust this God who provided the lamb for you and you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven and made clean. And so let me close by asking just these questions here. to two groups and I often do this. If you're here today, right, when I, when I say this, do you believe this? 
Do you trust the Lord? For many of us, we answer that quickly. We go, yes, I do. Praise God. What a great story. Can I press in on you this morning? If you say yes to that question, to those questions, yes, I believe God. Yes, I trust the Lord. I said earlier, right, it can't just be the talk. It also has to be the walk. Faith, we, let me say very clearly, we are not saved by our performance. We are not saved by our works. It is nothing that we do. It is everything that God has done in providing a substitute for you and for me in our place. We are saved by grace through faith. But that faith has to express itself in obedience to the Lord. Trusting him is not just saying, yes, I believe in him. It's giving our life to him, ordering our life in such a way that when the Lord says, man, go, we go. So can I ask you to take a moment, as we get ready to pray here in a moment, that you'll just take a moment and reflect and ask, Lord, is that the evidence of my life? I say that I trust you, but does obedience flow from my life? I say that I trust you, Lord. Does my life show evidence of that? And for some of us, you're here today, you've never trusted Christ. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this, that God has made a way for you, that the problem of your life, the main problem of your life is not someone else, it's not your career, it's not that you need more money, it's not anything else, it is the sin that stands between you and the Father. And maybe today is the first time that you're hearing that God so loved you that he gave his son, his only son, for you that you might be saved and reconciled to him. My question for you is, today are you ready to take that step? Turn from your sin and trust Jesus with your life. And if you are, if you will trust in the provision of God for you, that God has provided the lamb, you will find beginning today the purpose that God has for you. That he has saved you and brought you into his family to send you back out with the purpose for your life to go make disciples for his glory and to be used by him to make much of him. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray uh, for those of us who are here today. Uh, First, God, for those who are here who know you, maybe who have heard this story before. God, I, I pray that today would bring it to light for us in a new way where we would just be stunned, Lord, at the consistency of Scripture, of the fact that centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth, you gave us a, a picture, a drama like this that helps us understand what you did for us. And God, I pray this morning that for everyone here who claims the name of Christ, that today we'll be challenged to think about, do I trust him this way? Do I trust you with everything, holding nothing back? God, am I standing on the promises? Am I ordering my life in such a way that it reflects an abiding faith in the Lord? As I ask those questions, I just want to give you a moment to pray. Let's have some quiet time. We, we live in a very busy world where there is very little quiet. And I want to just give you a minute or two here to sit in silence before the Lord and to reflect on those things.
as we continue to pray, right? I want to speak to that second group. Maybe you're here today and you've never taken a step to follow Jesus. Maybe you've never identified as a believer in Christ and maybe today is the first time you heard. (laughs) Well, God provided a ram for Isaac. He provided a son, his son for you. And I don't know what's brought you here today or what's brought you to this moment, but maybe what's clear is that God has brought you to a decision moment and you're ready to say, man, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to start following him. I want to give you a moment to pray. You can pray with me. You can pray in your own words. It's not magic. It's not even really just about the prayer. It's about the orientation of your heart to say, Lord, today I surrender. I want to start walking with you. Pray with me. Father, today I receive what you have provided. Jehovah Jireh, the one who has provided for me, thank you for providing your son at the cross for me. Thank you for providing a way for me to be forgiven and saved. And today, Lord, I give you my life. You gave me, Jesus, your life. I give mine back to you. And from this day forward, will you order my steps? Will you lead me? and guide me. Thank you for rescuing me. And starting today, I want to discover my purpose that you have for me. And we pray that, and we ask that, and we thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.